Uh, but today's the second part of killing it, and this is a short, short series about killing that thing in each of us. It has the potential to hurt us, the potential to sabotage us, or our future. It's the thing that each of us, it keeps us uh, from apologizing when we know that we're wrong. It keeps us from apologizing, from admitting we're wrong, from admitting weakness. It keeps us from forgiving. It's, it's what causes some of us to cheat before we would allow ourselves to lose. Uh, for some of you, it's what causes you to embellish or even lie about your past, a failed job, a failed, a failed relationship, a failure in finances, a failed marriage, maybe the fact that you never really graduated. It causes you to feel happy when certain people fail. It, it, keeps, you from ju- it keeps you justifying all of the reasons why you don't need or don't have the time for reading or counseling or seeking mentors or support or accountability that could help you grow and transform and improve, because what's to improve, right? It stands in the way, not only of our relationship with other people, but our relationship with God. It's the thing that keeps you from authentically celebrating other people's success and from initiating an apology. It keeps you arguing well past the point where you realize internally that you are actually wrong. It causes you to be obnoxious and demeaning when you're right. It keeps you from admitting weakness, from admitting that you need help or that you don't really know what you're doing, even though everyone around you already knows that you don't really know what you're doing. It keeps you from being honest with yourself and with others and from learning new things because you're always trying to project this image around to the people around you that you just know what you're doing. It's what causes you to power up when you should power down and to humble yourself in your rightness and admitting your error. It's, it causes you to withdraw when actually you should lean in and always having to have the final word. It's also the things that, that causes you to buy things to impress people that honestly they just don't really care that much. It's what causes most of us to commit what's called the fundamental attribution error. It's your tendency and mine to attribute another's actions to their character and their personality while attributing our behavior to situational factors outside of our control. In other words, we condemn others, yet we justify ourselves oftentimes for the very same behaviors. And all this comes down to one word, pride. And last week, and this week in Easter and what follows, is is actually a connected journey that I hope all of you will engage, even if this is your first time, that you would engage, and it's to help you break free from patterns and behaviors that ultimately hurt you and hurt others in small ways and sometimes in big ways, people that you care most about, and it ends up creating regret. And if you'll fully engage, be consistent over the next few weeks, not only will you learn more about yourself, but you'll also begin to better see the world through other people's eyes, even people that are very different from you. Understanding how and why people that you know think and feel and act the way that they do, paving the way to more peace and less regret, and to become the wiser, more compassionate person that I know you want to become. We all want to become that. And to, to all that begins with last week and then today's message and then Easter And then immediately following Easter, as I said, I'm going to be interviewing a very special guest because as a community, we're going to be leaning into an ancient profiling tool, again, called the Enneagram. I want to repeat, not pentagram. In fact, the the person I'm going to interview, we were talking, and basically the Enneagram is if two pentagrams made out and they produce the, I I don't know if that works, but think ancient Myers-Briggs. Think ancient MBTI or DISC. It's an ancient, accurate, it's not a faith-based, but it's a profiling tool. 
and that's to come after Easter. But to set us up, last week and today, we're, talking about, we're taking the first step, and we're talking about the thing, the thing that will prevent you and prevent me from progressing and growing and changing and getting better. And again, it's one word, and the word is pride. Because as we said last week, pride is a prison. It's a prison that shuts us in and God and others out. Because when you're filled with pride, there's no room for anyone else. Pride always diminishes your capacity to admit what you need to admit, to acknowledge what you need to acknowledge, to apologize when you need to apologize. And this is such a big deal. And if you're a Christian, or more specifically, a Jesus follower, then you recognize that there is zero room for pride because any personal or material asset that you have or I have comes from your Father in heaven, which means that you have no reason or no right to be arrogant or proud, and neither do I. And before you might say to me, well, I don't really have a pride problem because you equate pride with kind of loud, overt arrogance, and you don't see yourself as loud and overtly arrogant, don't be fooled. Because pride can be quiet and subtle and passively aggressive. The fact is that we never have an excuse to look down on anyone else, and I have every reason to initiate reconciliation because the one that I follow, Jesus, initiated reconciliation. So today I want to talk about something that we all have, and it doesn't matter what you believe about God or faith or Jesus or any of that. It is something that we all possess, and it's an appetite for known that you and I have this appetite, that by our nature, we want to be known, admired, and appreciated, right? That, that we want to be known, admired, and appreciated for something by somebody. And again, you might go, you know, that's not me. I'm more of an introvert. I'm a behind-the-scenes person. Yeah, but you still want to be admired and appreciated for something, to be known. The fact is, every single one of us, me included, we want to be known admired and appreciated for something by somebody, and maybe, and usually some bodies. We all have an audience, right? We all have an audience when we get dressed in the morning to leave the house, at least when we used to leave the house, right? Okay, uh, for those of you joining us online, let's be honest. Several of you, you're joining us online because it meant that you didn't have to get up and get ready and get dressed and make yourself what? Presentable, right? Because you have to present yourself. We all have an audience in mind when we brush or do our hair or our face or the clothes or the shoes that we, that we wear we, or choose. We all have an audience in mind with everything that we do or say and everything that we don't say or do. We all have an audience in mind at work or at home or in, in the neighborhood or at school in the fraternity or the sorority. What, whatever it is, all of us want to be known and admired and appreciated for something by somebody. And in the age of social media, you want to be friended, followed, liked, and mentioned. In fact, some of you, you can't get enough friends, enough followers, enough likes, enough mentions, and suddenly you're in a popularity contest with everyone else in the world. For some of you, you can't remember the last time somebody else took your picture, okay? And if you can't relate to any of this, there's another column for all of you pre-millennials and pre-Gen Zs in the room with some smoke in your hair. Uh, we want to be recognized, right, as an individual. We want to be recognized as a spouse, as a, a parent, by our chosen vocation, our, our career. Uh, we want to be recognized. We want to be admired. We want to be sought after. And we'll never admit this, but for most of us, there's a bit, bit of us, that there's a part of us that wants to be envied. There's a part of us that wants to be envied. We want to, be, we want to look successful like we've got it together as a single person or as a husband or a wife or a parent or financially. 
I mean, that's why you chose the car to buy the car that you bought. It's why you keep it so clean. Ladies, it's why right before your husband walks out, you go, honey, okay, that still doesn't match. Okay, it didn't match the last time. Nothing has changed. Our cargo shorts went out a few years ago. You don't say this, ladies. But see, it's, it isn't really that you care that we look like idiots. It's that you don't want you to look like an idiot because of your husband's poor fashion choices, especially if you're going out together, because that's going to reflect poorly on you, and you want people to look at your husband and envy you, not pity you, okay? That's how it works. And men, you've had a similar thought. You're about to go out, and you, you think what she's wearing doesn't really look that flattering, or she asks that terrifying question, does this make me look fat, yeah, and, and we, you've learned not to say anything negative once, she, once she's already got it on. If you haven't, you will. It's uh, like one of the earliest uh, Geico commercials. Sorry, Dean, my State Farm agent in the back, uh, but one of the early Geico commercials years ago where the guy's at the kitchen counter, he's like drinking coffee, he's looking at the paper, reading the paper, his wife comes in in a dress, says, honey, does this dress make me look fat? And without missing a beat or looking it up, he just goes, you betcha. And then the commentator says, in the time it takes for you to pull out the sleeper sofa, you can save hundreds on car insurance. So, see, there's something in all of us, just at some level, we want people to envy us, to have people look at us and envy the way we look, uh, what, drive what we drive, live where we live, to have the husband or the wife that, that we have, or to be envied for how well-behaved and smart your kids are. And before long, that desire that what we want to be known for, if we're not careful, it can get us into trouble. And it's this subtle reflection of pride that begins to shut us in and God and others out. Uh, the truth is, there's a little Lady Gaga in all of us. We live for the applause, the applause, applause. And if you don't know who that is, it doesn't matter. There's a little of her in all of us. And this all started when we were children. It starts with this. Daddy watch, daddy watch, daddy watch, mama watch, mama watch, mama watch. It's like our neighbor's little boy. In fact, just like yesterday, uh, we were outside and our neighbor's little boy goes to my wife and goes, Miss Shauna, Miss Shauna, come watch me. You want to watch, watch me jump on the trampoline? And he's so stinking cute, you can't help but go and watch. It's like, you can't say no. And if you've got kids, and we've had four, like you've heard it a thousand times, and they want you to watch the same thing over and over and over again, and you do, and what is it? It's, it's just that thing. It's that thing in us that wants to be known and admired and appreciated and starts as children and wants the approval of people. And then we're born into this world with an audience, and for the vast majority of us, it's our mom and our dad, and, and no offense, ladies. But the truth is that our primary audience for most of us is our dads. There, there's a ton of fascinating research and data on this that supports this idea, this fact, that there's something in us that never quite gets enough applause from our dads or the father figure in our life. It's one of the things that can set us up to struggle in life as adults, that we never got our approval bucket filled uh, enough by the people that were most important to us, especially our dads. And then as we grow up, this thing in us that wants to get watched, it gets directed at a, at a teacher or at a coach or a set of friends, most importantly. And then it's that boy or then it's that girl and now we're adults and now we have a different audience. We have a different group that we're looking for applause from. Uh, maybe it's your husband or your wife. And you just feel like you're just constantly having to try to win their approval or their affection. 
Uh, maybe it's your boss. Maybe it's somebody that you work with. For some of you, you live for the applause of your students, or you live for the applause of your children, but you can't ever get enough, and you're trying to wring acceptance out of your children, but you can never get enough. And, uh, and you try to get this acceptance out of your children or your ad- adult children and living for their applause, and you need to know that's going to haunt you and haunt them later on. You just need to know. But, but to some extent, we all live for the applause of somebody for something. And it's natural and it's normal. But it can get us into trouble because it's an appetite. And an appetite is never fully and finally satisfied. That's just the nature of an appetite. You feed it and it grows. It's, this is why the more friends, fans, and followers you get, the more you want. You'll never get enough. You never go, I, I don't really want to re- be recognized for what I've done. No one ever says, well, I don't really like to see my name in print or on the screen or in lights. I, I don't really like to be recognized for my hard work in my job or in my relationships. I don't really want my spouse or kids to appreciate me. I, I, I don't really feel like anybody needs to thank me. No, it's in us to be recognized, to be known. But the tension is this. There's no amount of known that will satisfy your appetite to be known for the thing that you've determined you want to be known for at work, at home, as a parent. In culture, in school, we're just constantly on a quest for more recognition. And now, not in every area, but for sure, at least one or two areas where we've decided these areas are important to us. These are areas where we find the majority of our sense of worth, our self-esteem. A personal example is it doesn't matter if we're leaning into a series developed by our partner church or if I'm developing something entirely from scratch. I invest hours and hours into every 30-ish minute message that I deliver every single weekend. And then every Sunday, like this morning, I get up around 4.15, 4.30 in the morning. And this is to give me time, to abundant time to pray, to be in quiet to get mentally in the zone, to go over my notes word for word. I make final edits because I want to offer God and I want to offer you my very best. And at best, I'm an average communicator, which means I have to work extra hard to try and be as clear and concise and hopefully as compelling as possible. And while I absolutely love, I absolutely love to get messages and to hear from people, to hear from you, about how something I said or how I said it or how I explained something helped something click for you and it actually made a difference and you actually decided to make an adjustment or a change in your life. Like, I, I, I love that. Uh, and, and, but there's one person that I want to hear from the most and it's the person I love the most, my wife, Shauna. And that beautiful woman never pulls any punches. She always shoots very uncomfortably, painfully straight with me. It's kind of like the early years of American Idol and now America's Got Talent. Whose approval does every contestant want the most? Simon's, right? Sean is my Simon. So on Sundays, like we, we tear down after service, we connect with people, and then eventually we head out. And because we drive separately usually, uh, Shauna typically, she'll be the one, she'll give me a call and what I am most hoping for to hear her say is how good she thought the message was. 
how she felt the message flowed, what she liked about it, and, and often she'll do that, because, and that means a lot to me, because again, she can, she can be a tough judge. She's my Simon. So her words carry 10 times the weight of anyone else. In fact, in the message five weeks ago on baptism, I happened to unpack and use a lot of Greek to help understand baptism. And, you know, many American women talk about how attractive it is when a man speaks Spanish, Espanol, or French. For my wife, apparently it's Greek, because she called me, and she's like, oh, babe, the Greek. I, I loved all the Greek. And I was like, Moro Musei Agapa. <laughs> Baby, I love you too, okay? But every once in a while, she forgets to say something. And then I begin thinking, especially as a three on the Enneagram, and if you don't know what that is, grab a book on the way out, come to the workshop. But as a three on the Enneagram, if, what I need to do is like, I, I need to hear something. And if she doesn't say something, then uh, I just like, well, uh, maybe she didn't like it. Maybe it wasn't good. Maybe it didn't flow. Maybe it didn't connect. And it's just such a big deal to hear something positive for her. And sometimes I can get a little weird. Now, for all of us, our appetite to be known, admired, and appreciated, it's powerful, which can make it dangerous because if we don't keep it in check, it can sabotage us in our relationships that matter most. So, to our rescue comes a very well-known character. We talked about him five weeks ago during the Lots of Greek Talk. And, and if, now, let me just ask this. If you have ever heard of John the Baptist, raise your hand. All right, like it online. Okay, so all of you did. So, so this, this actually matters, because how many of you think that 2,000 years from now, somebody is going to be talking about you? Okay, 200 years from now. For some of us, like not even 20 years. Like three generations, nobody even remembers our name, all right? So, so here's John, and what we learn from John the Baptist is how to handle this appetite for being known, admired, and appreciated, where it actually serves us well rather than sabotaging us. Several of the gospel writers give us bits and pieces of the story, so I'm going to piece it all together from these different writers. Uh, but most of you are familiar with this story, again, especially if you were here five weeks ago. But John appeared in the wilderness out of nowhere. He's preaching a baptism of repentance. He is the first person in history that we know of that actually baptized other people. I mean, there was a ceremonial cleansing that Jews did. They would baptize or dip themselves. This is what non-Jews did in the process of becoming followers of Judaism to become Jewish and embrace Judaism. But no one that we knew know of in history baptized another person before John. And it was a baptism of repentance and for the forgiveness of sins. And this statement in this context is so huge. The gospel writer tells us that the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Now, we're tempted to read right by that, but this is a big deal. Okay, even if this is hyperbole, like we'd say, well, everybody's going, everybody's going to the party, even if it's hyperbole, this means thousands and thousands of people went to see John the Baptist. And in this time and context, what that meant was you had to get up before the sun rose, travel all day. You'd get there about the time the sun was setting, then be there all the next day, and then it would be a full day of travel back the next day. And so you'd spend a day listening and watching John, then a day walking back, much of it uphill to Jerusalem. So this was not a casual endeavor. So this was a three-day trip to hear John the Baptist. And we're told that everybody in Jerusalem 
went, the whole Judean countryside. So thousands and thousands went, so many so that they begin to wonder and begin to think, perhaps this is the Messiah. Perhaps this is the one that we have been waiting for as a nation. We've not had this much energy and excitement in our lifetime. So the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, they send people out to talk to John and question him, priests and Levites, and they ask him, are you the Messiah? And he said, I am not. So they asked him, well, who are you? Are, are you Elijah? Because in the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, the, the prophet says that before God does something new in Israel, before he sends what is called the Son of Man, that a prophet would rise up, that would be like the Old Testament prophet Elijah. So some people thought, well, maybe he'll be reincarnated. Maybe he'll be brought back from the dead, or maybe there'll just be another prophet that was like Elijah. So are you that guy? And he says, I am not. Finally, they said, well, who are you then? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? You're not the Messiah. You're not Elijah. You're not, you, but you've got this big crowd. Who are you? So he's been asked this question. Now here's his big moment. All eyes are on him. And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I'm the voice. I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. I am just simply a road sign. I am just nothing more than a directional marker. I am to attract people to me so that I can point people to him. I am so, so well known so that I can make him so well known. I'm simply here to draw a crowd and then point them in his direction. And he was here before me. He, he comes after me. He has surpassed me. And the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, said, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah or Elijah nor the prophet? And he replied, you think this is something? This is nothing. I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. I'm not even worthy to be his lowest servant. You see this big crowd that I've drawn, people from, coming from all over the place, coming for miles, spending the night, camping out to listen to me speak. You think I'm sub something? I am nothing. I am just the opener. You wait until the main act steps on stage. So people are walking all around, and it's just going to be fantastic. And then right after this encounter with the guys from Jerusalem, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. So he had a core group as well. And when he saw Jesus passing by again, again, everyone, I, I'm going to have your attention. I am here to make him known. He is the one. Look, the Lamb of God. I, the reason I am so well known is to make that guy right there known. But when he did it this second time, something interesting happened. When two of John's disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus, which meant that they unfollowed John. Have you ever been unfollowed by someone? It's like, did I offend you? Did I do something wrong? A few years ago, uh, way before the last political elections, I did some house cleaning with my friends list, and a person actually messaged me like two weeks later, and they, they noticed that we weren't connected on Facebook anymore, and they were deeply offended. Like, they're so upset, like, I'm not talking to you anymore. Like, okay, didn't you just do what you thought I did? So, but it's just like, no joke, they were insulted. So these guys, it's like, John, thank you so much. You know, you've made us famous. You've taken care of us. But if you're saying like, that's the guy and he has more to offer than you do, peace out. We're following him. And they unfollowed John and they followed Jesus. And that's disturbing if you're John the Baptist. 
and you're starting to lose your core group. But this did not bother John. It really bothered his closest followers. I mean, they came running up to him saying, hey, are you okay? We'll get some more guys or whatever. But this man that was with you on the other side of the Jordan, Jesus, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everybody, everyone's going to him. John, this is bad. I mean, you invented baptism, okay? You're like, you're John the Baptist. We don't even know who or what he is. He doesn't even have a title. He's over there baptizing. I mean, we need to up your game. We need to do something. Maybe we need to get a portable baptistry, move it closer to Jerusalem so people don't have to come out so far. I mean, we need to do something. You're losing followers. Everyone is going to him. I mean, that's a bad thing, right? Now, if you've been daydreaming or shopping on Amazon, I need you to pay attention because the next statement is why we are here this morning. It's, this is so big and so powerful. And if you're not a Christian, honestly, I don't necessarily know what you do with this. But if you are a Jesus follower, then you really ought to write down the next statement somewhere where you can see it once in a while because this is a game changer. This next statement is what will allow you to be known and admired and appreciated and never have it go to your head. This next statement will allow you to have an infinite, infinite number of followers and fans and, and friends and never have it go to your head. And mo- more importantly, this statement is what prepares you for the day, for the day when you have fewer friends and fewer fans and fewer followers, when you're not the new kid on the block anymore. You're not the shiny one. That a new kid arrives in your workplace. He's uh, the, the one that makes you look like a beginner or the one that arrives that's prettier or smarter or more talented. The one that makes you look like a beginner. This is the idea that prepares us for the day where you're no longer the go-to person. We're, we're not the star. Suddenly our better days are behind us. And this is what will keep us from grasping and clinging and trying to control something that honestly we never controlled really in the first place as it slips through our hands. John replied, a person can receive only what is given from heaven. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. John says, guys, look, all my being known, admired, and appreciated, all this fame and drawing a crowd, everything has been placed in my hands place in these hands from God, which means I give credit to God. And it also means when he begins to take that away, I don't freak out. But you're bothered by the fact that I'm losing fans and followers. I'm not bothered because everything is placed in my hands and everything that's placed in my hands is temporary. It's a stewardship. All my knownness is a gift. And I will not make the mistake of thinking for a moment that it's all about me. He says to the group that had been with him the whole time, he says, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah and was sent ahead of him. I've been telling you the whole time that my fame is for his fame. I'm here to make him known. So if he becomes more known than me, fantastic. In fact, I'm happy about it. In fact, joy is mine and it's now complete. And this is huge. And this is the statement. He must become greater and I must become less. My desire to be known doesn't own me. In fact, I'm only known to make him known. And again, if you're a Christian, if you're a Jesus follower, I can't adequately express how huge this is and what a difference this will make in your life if in the lives of those around you, if you could truly adopt and embrace this posture in your life. Because like John, whatever we've been given, 
Whatever our level of known, whatever our level of influence with people, the people around us at work, in our home, in our lives, whatever you're known for, for however long you're known for it, by whomever you're known is a means to an end of making him known. It's not about you. It never has been. Which is why the worst thing that we can do is try to obsess over and hang on and cling on to something we never had to control to begin with. Because the reason we're known is to make the love of our Savior known. John would say with every breath, remember who it's from and who it's for. Remember every single day, who's given you your opportunities that you have? Who gave you your opportunity for the education that you got? the career that you got, the job that you got, the ability to generate income. Remember every single day, who allowed you to be born into the family that you were born into, to live in this country, in this city, at this particular time? Who made it so that you've been able to meet people and, that, uh, that the, uh, and have given you the opportunities that you've had? You've got to remember who gave you the ability to speak, who gave you the, the ability to lead or to teach or to communicate, to relate, to make music, to sell something. Who made you so beautiful and attractive? Who gave you your personality? Because, again, reality check, you had no control over any of that. John would say, you remember who it's from. And if you're a Jesus follower, you remember who it's for. And if you do that, you will live with so much less stress. You will live with so much more peace. You will live with a wonderful sense of purpose, and you will begin to find joy in building others up, helping them be successful, finding joy in their success. And God will end up being able to place an amazing amount of appreciation from others to you and admiration and knownness in your hands, and it won't hurt you or harm you or your relationships. It instead will simply reflect well on him and point others to him. And when it begins to dissipate, you won't grasp. I mean, all of us have met people in life. It's just like they're just trying to desperately hold on to the past and hold on to this image and what they were when they were top of their game. And now it's been 10 and 15 years and they're just, everyone is just a means to their end goal and to boost their pride and their ego. The key lesson from John is remembering who we are doing it for, for a good God who loves us. And whether we realize it in the moment or not, but what we eventually discover is all of the things that God, it's not like God is looking for performing monkeys that just do whatever he tells us to do. The truth is everything that is ultimately pleasing for him that we would do is in our best interest because he loves us. What if that was your perspective about all things in your life as it related to your Heavenly Father? That a person can receive only what is given them from heaven, which means practically for you and for me, it means we live today, we're going to get up tomorrow, that we live every single day, you do your best, you give 110%, and then at the end of the day, you just are able to say to God, with the opportunity and the privilege that you gave me, uh, with the reputation, the influence, the financial ability that you gave me, I did my best. I did my best, and I did my best to have it reflect well on you and to make you known. Then in the end, if, if the New Testament writers are correct, we can expect to hear from our Heavenly Father, well done, 
well done. You, you killed it. Because in the end, the only applause that will truly matter is the applause of God. 